All right, good morning. Uh, I'm actually very impressed. I didn't think this many people would be here today. It's like snowing. Well, we are going through a series uh, called Mountains, and we're looking at the different mountaintop experiences uh, through Scripture, and uh, the more significant ones, quite a few mountains that are mentioned, but these are the ones that actually have stories that go along with them. We're, uh, today we're at part five in this series. Next week we'll be part six. It'll be the last time we're in the Old Testament next week, and we'll transition to some New Testament uh, mountains. But it has been it's been very interesting for me, because one, it's really pushing me into, into books that, like, I never would sit down, like, today we're going to be in Judges. Like, I would never sit down and go, let's do a series in Judges, where they kill each other. Like, I'm not, just not something I'd be excited about. But here I am, like, i got to preach on Judges today. And uh, and last week, Joshua, where everybody kills each other. You know, so it's kind of like, ah. But it's been really good. It's like, for me, personally, just to kind of, like, wrestle with this. And that's, I feel dangerous. It's like, uh, Thursday was just crazy. Our heater had his brake was on fire. Well, smoke was coming out. But it's not a good thing, and so I called somebody, and so that was Thursday, and then this is my study day, and so of course Satan needs something like my boiler, um, and then uh, it's a Friday, I was trying to piece together what I could piece together on Thursday, and then and then you know finally it felt like last night, it's like okay, I think I think it's finally come together, you know, it's just like such a wrestling with today's text, you know, um, so it's, it's been great. So far, before you you can open up your Bible, if you can revise your book of Judges chapter. But I just want to bring you up to date here so far with, um, with the series and Israel up to this point. Uh, so far in the series, we've seen Abraham uh, go up before um, on Mount Moriah with Isaac. Abraham is the promised father of Israel, and, uh, and he has to make one last huge test to prove his faithfulness and so forth, uh, so to speak. And so he has to um, almost sacrifice his one and only son uh, to give the reader the understanding of what it's going to cost God one day to sacrifice his son fully. And so on Mount Moriah, we see this incredible test, and that's where Israel kind of takes its root. Uh, so Isaac goes on to have children. He has two kids, and then uh, one of those kids is uh, Jacob and Esau, are the two kids, and Jacob goes on. His name is changed to Israel when he wrestles with God, and Israel goes on to have 12 kids, and then the nation of Israel expands in Egypt, as many of you know. And so it's in that in the book of Exodus that we see our next two mountain occurrences. The first one happens with a guy named Moses. He sees a president on fire. Thank you. Just making sure you're awake. No, no, no presidents on fire. So he sees a bush on fire. It's not consumed. It's the burning bush. It's on uh, Mount Sinai. And so he has a conversation with God, experiences the holiness of God in that moment. True mountaintop experience, what we all expect to have in this moment with God. And then he goes down, sets the prisoners, set the slaves free, with plagues, all that stuff. They go back to Mount Sinai. It's called the Mountain of God. And that's where they receive the Ten Commandments right there. So we look at the Ten Commandments that would be. Then we see Israel, the, the first five books are called the Torah. The first five books are closed at that point. Deuteronomy is the end of it. It ends with Moses dying, looking at the promised land. He doesn't get to inherit the promised land. Even though he's been faithful to God, he gives the people the Ten Commandments, says everything God asked him to do. He still doesn't get to inherit the promised land because that is not our promised land. Our promised land is in heaven with God. That is our fortune. That is our abundance that we look forward to. So hopefully you're picking up on all that. And so um, the Deuteronomy ends with him. We have the book of Joshua, which is the campaign to take over the Canaanite land, which is the promised land of God. And so they go in, and so Joshua is a war book of all these wars that happen in order, in order for Israel to take over the Canaanite land. 
And we saw last week how Israel was unfaithful and they had sinned, so God allowed for them to get defeated at Ai. And we saw that retreat to a mountaintop, Mount Ebal, which is still there today, where they recommitted their lives to the Word of God, recommitted their commitments to God in His Word, and for the most part remained faithful. However, in the book of Judges, which is the book following that, we see very quickly that they were not faithful. Because faithful, they would have, they would have eradicated all of the Canaanite, um, they would have eradicated all of the Canaanite gods, which were a distraction to them. The culture was a distraction and an affront to God's holiness. And so since those things still kind of remained in their culture, they would be, they'd be constantly tempted. And that's what we see, the, that is the result of Judges. Uh, Judges is a book about, about Israel being unfaithful. And ultimately, they didn't get rid of the false gods that were there. And so they, because of that, they were, being, they were being constantly tempted. And they go through the cycle of temptation, as we'll see in just a second. It's a very, very, very least favorite ever dark book of the Bible. Never, ever, ever would I want to preach it. I'm so glad you're here. An hour less asleep. Okay, so Judges chapter 4 is where we are. It's right after the uh, judge of, um, oh, what's that kid's name? Ehud. Ehud. Ehud judge. He kills a guy. This book, oh, oh man, I shouldn't tell you this. It's like totally R-rated. Um, but he like takes a dagger and kills this Canaanite king, and the Canaanite king is so fat, and he sticks this is in the Bible. He sticks, he's left-handed. He sticks his hand into the guy's belly to kill him. And he's so, the Bible says he's so fat because he's, he's eating off the fat of the land. There's all kinds of imagery here because he's just such a corrupt person that he loses the dagger, which is like this long, in him. And this is in the Bible. You think you're bored reading the Bible? And so he's like, this takes out his hand. He's like, I'm just going to let that go. And he's gone, right? So... Israel's set free, and everybody's good, and then they fall back into the cycle of sin. And so they're set free for like 80 years, and then we pick up in verse chapter 4, verse 1. <laughs> I'll tell you today, too, how this guy dies. It's crazy. I'm not going to read to you. You'll pick yourself. And the people of Israel, again, did what was evil in the sight of the Lord after Ehud died. <coughs> so over and over and over and over again, we see this pattern. In fact, when we read the book of Judges, at that phrase, there's another phrase that's very common. People did what was right in their own eyes, sinning against God. It's this pattern of they, they, uh, they sin and they repent and they sin and they repent. And it always comes back to they got their, the culture, the generation got to a point where they said, you know what, I know God's word says this. I know God says this. I know the prophets are saying this, but I'm going to do what's right in my eyes. <laughs> I'm going to do what's right according to my culture. I'm going to define what is right and wrong now. I'm going to go beyond what Scripture teaches. I'm going to go beyond what God has taught me, and I'm going to define it because I'm the captain of my soul. Because I'm, you know, because everything is, you know, either right or wrong. There's, really, you know, there's no truth anymore, and so I'm able to do whatever I want to do. Isn't that crazy? It's amazing to think that people actually thought that way. It's a good thing we don't do that anymore. No, we still do. And the book of Judges is dealing with that very topic that, that people were um, constantly just trying to do what was right in their own eyes. So, and this is the reason, the reason that they're failing. The, reason, the, the point the Judges want you to see is Joshua did not complete the mission. They let Canaanites live. They, they, showed, they showed mercy to false gods. They showed mercy to, to sin. 
And they allowed for these Canaanite worshipers to worship their false gods and remain them. And they kind of thought, oh, we can all just coexist. We can all just make this work. And over time, the faithful followers of God would find themselves a couple generations removed from their grandparents who were faithful. And next thing you know, they're, they're walking in the paths of these Canaanite gods. And it reveals a cycle of sin uh, that we can't miss here. Worship a false god, that's what they do first. And then the false god oppresses them. And then they cry out to God, and then God sends a judge, and then they're delivered, and then they are faithful to God, and then 40 to 80 years pass, and they worship another God. Over and over and over again, all because these little, these little gods exist in the midst of this big God. And I, before I even move on to the next verses, I know it's been a long sermon, so don't, this, as my hanging breaks, it's going to be okay. You're like, we just got through verse one? Yes. You're new here. It's going to be fine. <laughs> We've got to deal, we have got to take the small things seriously. The other day, I, um, the other day I was, uh, I pulled out some um, keto bread. I, I'm on a Mediterranean diet. Cool. <laughs> I have high cholesterol. <laughs> Ancient. And, um, and so I, uh, I pulled out some keto bread, and it had a little growth on it. You know what I'm talking about? You ever pull out some bread, and it has a little green fuzzy thing on it. Now, I don't want to see your hands. I don't want you to confess this because we might judge you. But when I see that, I don't go, I'll just eat around it. None of you do that, right? I hope not, because that's just gross, right? Uh, I, don't, I don't go, I'll, there's no, by the way, there's no five second rule, 10 second rule, 15 second rule in my house. It falls on the ground, it goes in the trash. It's just the way it is, I'm a foe. Okay, so and so we uh, so I saw a little green thing on the thing, and I'm like, that's unfortunate because that whole patch is going in the trash. There's no way because if that one's infected, the rest of them have been touching it, and they're even though it's I have green stuff on it that I can see, it's there. It's microscopic, and I know it's infected with a fungus, and it's gross and old trash, right? Where is the yeast? Right? First, they had the bread, and I pulled it out, and it had a little growth on it, because we just don't eat a lot of bread. And so I'm like, what in the world? And so I didn't go, well, I'll just serve the other parts to the kids. <laughs> right? There's just a little growth in the front, and then there's, but the back of it's fine. No, because then I have to take it to the doctor and pay for that, as they get their stomach pumped, because of all the microbes that they just ate that are going to kill them, right? You're like, oh, it's penicillin, it's good for them. No, 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 no. None of that in my house, right? Now, surely... I'm not the only one who does this. You see a little bit of growth on some yeast or some food, and you're like, I, no, the whole thing is gone. Because Jesus said, a little bit of yeast works for the whole batch. Right? It's biblical. This is a theological decision, throwing out the bread. Are you with me on this? Am I all by myself? I'm seeing a little bit of affirmation and a little bit of thinking I'm crazy. Okay? Maybe this is why we're poor. But this is why I throw stuff out. Okay? This cannot... Deal with things that are like that, all right? Okay, how about this analogy? I love to bake. I do. I like to cook. I like to bake. And my I like to bake all kinds of different things. I even like to experiment. Um, but my kids won't let me. They love my chocolate chip cookies. I love them. And I'm like, I always make chocolate chip cookies, you know? So the other day, I decided to get a little bit creative. I thought, what would happen if I put just a little bit of dog poop? Because <laughs> it melts just like chocolate. It's, it looks just, you should see Jack's poop. It looks just like chocolate. 
and I'll just take this. Not a lot. This heat has those logs outside, and they're real cold right now. So you can go out there and just pick them up and just crumble them into the mix and just mix it around. Now, you don't know if you're going to get a poopy one or not, right? But you could get a good one. You could get a poopy one because I just took a little bit and mixed it around. Anybody want a cookie? <laughs> right? No, but it's just a little. A little bit of poopy. No. And your star. <laughs> we get it. You just take. So when it comes to food, a little bit of mold, a little bit of poop, you're out. Why not your soul? Why do you keep compromising? You say, well, I just, it's just a little thing. It doesn't hurt anybody. Nobody knows about it. It's private. You get drunk. You get high. You're looking at something on the internet. But it doesn't hurt anybody. It's just a little bitty thing. It is affecting your soul. In the same way these little bitty gods were affecting the souls of the people of Israel, when you let those little things into your life, they don't operate isolated from your soul and your heart and your walk with God. They are affecting it. In the same way Jack's poop affects my cookies. In the same way mold affects a loaf of bread. Deal, root out the little sins. You'll find yourself in the same cycle of Israel. I don't say this to be mean. I'm saying this to protect you. Don't pretend like they're not a big deal. They're a big deal. Deal with them. Protect yourself. You're too valuable. You're too valuable in the eyes of God to not deal with these things. So God allows your discipline to come upon them because they won't deal with their sin. Verse 2. And the Lord sold them into the land, into the hand of Jabin, king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. The commander of his army was Sisera, who lived in <laughs> Then the people of Israel, I couldn't even say that. Might as well look that in Hebrew. <laughs> then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord for help, for he had 900 chariots of iron, and he oppressed the people of Israel with cruelty for 20, uh, for 20 years. Caesarea, the reason it goes into all that description about where he lives and where he's from is he's kind of outside of the the. Uh, kingdom of Canaan, and it, it becomes clear that Caesarea is kind of Caesarea is kind of a uh, mercenary, right? He's a mercenary. He's, he's a hired hand of the Canaanites to oppress the Israelites. He's brutal. He's he's evil, and he has these nine hundred chariots under his command. So he's going to the highest bidder. Um, you just think of all these bad guys. In fact, there's archaeological evidence for this army of nine hundred chariots throughout history, uh, kind of. Ruling over people. It's fascinating. So Israel has fallen under this guy's rule uh, during this time. Chariots at that time were the, uh, they're like the, I don't know my military stuff these days, but they're like the Apache helicopter. Or they're like the nuke. I mean, they are the most powerful advanced weapon of the day, and they're iron. right? And so when they tell you that they're 900 iron chariots, they're saying this is the most advanced army in the known ancient world at this time. And they are ruling over. Israel. There's no way out. For 20 years, God allows for them to experience this. And, and it brings up this verse 2. It says, And the Lord sold them into the hand of Jabin, king of Canaan. Uh, the, the word sell is an interesting use of the word, but it's, it's almost as if God said, You want them? Because they want you. They obviously want you, and you want them, so here, have them. And that's the, kind of the, the exchange that's happening here. Take them. They want to be enslaved to you. They are begging for it. They've already worshipped your false gods, your little bitty gods. They won't deal with their stuff. Take them. Go ahead and have them. They're yours. 
and he sells them to them, knowing the end result. It reminds me of Hebrews 12, 6, says this, For the Lord disciplines the one he loves. Sin has a natural effect on our lives. And there's a point where God says, I'm not going to protect you from that any longer, because you need to stop. I'm just going to let this thing ruin you. I'm going to let it come to life. I'm going to expose you. I'm going to let you get addicted. I'm going to let you fall down on your face. So you will, in the words of um, the parable of the prodigal son, come to your senses. That you will have your face in the pit with the pigs, and you will go, oh my goodness, I had so much better than that. What am I doing here? And you will do everything you can to get out of this sin pattern you're in. So God says, okay, they need to realize what kind of God you are. So they will never want this. So God allows for Israel to go through that. Of course, Israel um, cries out and begs for them to take over them. So begs for God to do them. Verse 4. Now Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Lapida, was judging Israel at that time. She used to sit under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim. And the people of Israel came up to her talking about Deborah. Deborah is the judge that God is going to use to set his people free. They're begging, God, please help us, please free us from this tyranny, and he's going to rise up a woman named Deborah. Her name in Hebrew, <laughs> she must be from the South, because her name in Hebrew means honeybee. <laughs> okay, Deborah means honeybee in Hebrew, and so, um, which means she's sweet, but she stings. Yeah, definitely from the South, okay? Um, so she's a, but it says a couple things about her. She's a prophetess, and, and she's a judge. Um, so she was, a, she was leading Israel. Nothing is known about her husband except his name means torch. Um, but what is interesting here is the language that is used about her in verse 5. Uh, we'll talk about her being a prophetess in just a second. She used to sit under the palm. There are probably many judges throughout Israel and the country of Israel, and the, and the country of Canaan. And so, and they're out, all have different maybe districts, and so they're describing her district, but the word, the terminology of city. So here's this, let me just tell you what I did. So I thought, well, this is very interesting. First off, that the book of Judges, which is a very old book, I think thousands of years before Jesus, is lifting up a woman. How unique is that? And so I went and did some, some research that you'll never do. This is why you hired me, right? And so I went and said, what is the... What is the role of women in ancient Mesopotamian archaeology? Like, what, did, what, what do we know about women in these days? Well, we can see from this period and a little bit before, for about a thousand years in there, that women did serve some divine roles. Some were priestess, some things, some stuff like that. But also, some were queens. And the kind of the, the queen uh, thing ended after this book for a while, and then it comes back up. But during the history of ancient Israel and ancient Middle um, Near Eastern society, Women experienced a brief time when they were queens. Judges sits in that time. Deborah is in that time. The way we know that a woman was a queen or that she was a leader of the people is that her portrait or what was discussed about her or the, or the, the figurine we have of them or the, the, the sculpture, she is sitting. A woman who sits is a woman in authority. So Deborah reviewed Deborah sitting under the palm 
The reason that Hebrew language is there is not an accident. It's not just to give you a picture of a nice lady named Honeybee sitting, right? It's to show you that she is a woman of authority over a nation that does not have a castle, does not have a capital. It reminds me of another woman um, who, uh, she led a band of rebels against a, a, an empire. Okay, I keep going. One, the empire has a leader. His name is Darth Vader. But it's okay because the rebels have Luke Skywalker, right? And this woman is named Princess Leia. She has no castle. She has no place to rule from. They're a band of rebels who are scourging the universe and the galaxy far, far away long, long ago, right? I mean, so there's, there's none of that. But Princess Leia is a perfect example of a Deborah, a woman of authority, a woman in charge of the military, as you're going to see in just a minute, um, and a woman, and in all cases, you would call her a queen, but she's not, because they, they don't have a capital, they don't have a castle, they're not organized as a nation, they're an organized rebellion. And here we have Princess Leia, i.e. Deborah, i.e. a.k.a. Honeybee. All right? I just love that name. Okay. Deborah, what is so cool about Deborah, Deborah differs from all the other judges. Um, Deborah is, first off, she's a woman. That's very unusual. We know that she's a woman because she's a, has, she's a wife. You're welcome. Okay. Write that down. She's a woman because she's a wife. Deborah wasn't the giveaway. <laughs> um, other judges began in response to a foreign oppression. So most of the judges you see in the book of Judges, they rise up because God calls, you know, uh, people cry out, God responds, and he rises up a judge, and the judge avenges the people of Israel. In this case, Deborah is already. It's like Deborah's already a judge. Like she's already a good person. She doesn't need to be lifted up. She's already serving God faithfully in a corrupt culture. Like she's just a righteous woman, and God said this one. And she doesn't need to be to be to be lifted up as the other judges are we see in the book. She's a prophetess. That means she can interpret the past, that she can give direction in the present and announce the future. Um, she is one of many prophetesses mentioned in the Old Testament. There is Miriam, who is mentioned, uh, the, she's the sister of Moses, mentioned in Exodus 15.20. Huldah, Huldah, in 2 Kings 22. Isaiah's wife is also a prophetess in Isaiah 8.3. And Noadia, who is a false prophetess in Nehemiah 6.14. Here's what I love about all that. Tells me this. The Bible loves women. The Bible values women. The Bible believes women can lead. The Bible believes women are strong. The Bible believes women have a voice. I love it. Because we live in a culture that says, you're a Christian, you believe the Bible? I thought women weren't allowed to talk in church. I thought women weren't allowed to wear pants. Who said that? Who had the person in the 1960s started that, right? No, I thought women had to wear dresses down to their ankles. You know, I thought women couldn't lead. No, no. The Bible affirms women. And it affirms them as leaders. And it affirms them as strong. Throughout the New Testament, even we see women hosting house churches. We see women assisting Paul in ministry. We see women performing uh, in the um, position of deacon as deaconesses. We also see prophetesses, prophetesses, uh, women being prophets in the New Testament. And we also see that, very interesting, that women are the primary witnesses of the resurrection of Jesus. If you wanted to prove something in the court of law, a woman's voice 
was mute. There was no point in the ancient culture to allow a woman to speak because her, her, her voice meant nothing. A man is the only person who could prove something in a court of law. So why would the Bible then allow for women to be the first ones to affirm the resurrection of Jesus as, as ones portraying the evidence that Jesus resurrected? Because it's true and because the Bible loves women. Right? The Bible values women. Did you hear that this morning? Have I told you that enough this morning that the Bible values women? It absolutely does. The interesting thing, though, is that even though it does value women, and even though women hold a high place throughout Scripture, in fact, it's revel- the Bible is revolutionary in its treatment of women. It's revolutionary, right? And I think it's crazy that our culture keeps telling us that the Bible is backwards to culture. No, 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 no. It's a revolutionary book when it comes to the role of women in society. So even with all of that strength, I've want got to be faithful to this part too. The Bible never takes away from the uniqueness and the beauty of femininity. You are a beautiful You are a purpose. You have a beautiful purpose. And it is unique to your gender. And God created your gender for a reason. And so there are situations in Scripture that we see the Bible says, okay, this position is reserved for the gender of a man, but this position is reserved for the gender of They are unique. They're not different. They are different, but they're equal in the grace of God. And God, in his wisdom, has says, I know maybe you're not going to understand this, and I know culture is going to call you crazy, but don't do what is right in your own eyes. Know that God loves women, loves women in leadership, anoints women in leadership. However, there are certain places in the church that, that women are just to be in this spot and men are to be in this spot the way God has designed. And so we just, even though maybe we don't understand it culturally, we trust it biblically because it's God's will. Brave, brave woman. Verse 6. Deborah sent and summoned Barak, not Barak. Barak. Two different ones. The son of from Kadesh Nephathah, and said to him, He um, has not the Lord, the God of Israel, commanded you. She's prophesying. Go gather your men at Mount Tabor, taking 10,000 from the people of Nephali and the people of Zebulun, and I will draw out Caesarea, the general of Jabin's army, to meet you by the river Kishon and his, with his chariots and his troops, and I will give him into your hand. That should be in quotes in your Bible, because she is quoting God. That is what she's doing. She is prophesying. She's preaching, right? That is what this woman is doing. So she calls Barak, and she, she is, again, we know she's a woman of authority because she calls the general, and she says, get to work. It is time to fight. She calls on the army. She establishes the. She calls on the whole army of Israel to come together to fight Caesarea and to be set free. We see here the six tribes participating in battle. It's the closest we ever see of the people of Israel united and united under Deborah, right? And so we see them. We see them coming together in battle. In fact, the book ends with a civil war in Israel. So they've been united. They've been divided the whole time, and they'll stay divided for many years. But yet we see them here united under a. Um, so she tells Barak, um, it's, time to, it's time to go fight, and you can go fight, and you can trust this, because God is, God, God is with us. Now, in our culture, people say stuff that are done, that's dumb all the time, right? We, people say, say things about God or for God all the time, and we don't kill them, do we? No, right? 
right? Am I right? Okay. Show, I get in trouble. Okay. In her culture, you can't say things for God and not expect to get killed if you're wrong. The book of Deuteronomy 18, 20, verses, uh, verses 20 through 21, I think I have it from the screen. But the prophet who presumes to speak a word in my name, and I have not commanded him to speak, or who speaks in the name of other gods, that same prophet shall die. And if you say in your heart, how may we know the word that the Lord has not spoken? When a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the word does not come to pass or come true, that is a word that the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken presumptuously, you need not be afraid of him or her. Kill them. That's the deal. That's the command. False prophets die. Death penalty. Harsh. Right? When she says, when Deborah says, okay, hey, it's time. We can go take out Caesarea now. We can go take out the, this, this rule of Canaanites over us. We can go fight. God is with us. The moment she says that, the moment this brave woman says that, she puts her head I'm right. I'm true. You can trust my word. I'm a prophet. She's great. She is a picture of absolute bravery. So Deborah is risking her life. She's risking her career. She's doing everything she can to be faithful to God, risking it all. Um, she is. She is this example of bravery. I don't think Barak Bara is a contrast to her, although some scholars do with the verse 8. Barak said to her, if you will go with me, I will go. But if you will not go with me, I will not go. And she said, I will surely go with you. Nevertheless, the road on which you are going will not lead to your glory, General. Not going to lead to your glory. The Lord will sell Caesarea into the hand of a woman. It's not even going to be dead. Then Deborah arose and went with Barak. So scholars are all over the place. Did, did, is Eric a coward? Or is he just really, really smart and says, you know what, you are a woman of God, you're a prophet, and in case I need further instructions on the battlefield, why don't you come with me? Or is he a coward and he's saying, uh, I need you with me? Or is he saying, if you're wrong, you're dead, so come with me. Right? I mean, so it's kind of like, we don't really know where he's coming from. I don't even know what to tell you. Those are your options. Okay, it doesn't matter. We're fine. But I think the, what we need to see here is this big picture that God's people repented and prayed for salvation from a, from a ruthless ruler, a very powerful uh, army, uh, they, and a female prophet has risen up, even though men prophets were available. A sheepish general rose up. A divided army of farmers, poorly outfitted troops, go on to take on one of the most advanced forces of the ancient world. That's what we're supposed to see. We're supposed to see this impossible odds, right? That's like a X-Wing fighter taking on the Death Star. <laughs> we all need to watch Star Wars today. All of you, all eight episodes. Let's do this. Okay. Verse 10. And Barak called out to Zebulun, Nathalie, and Kadesh, and 10,000 men went up at his heels, and Deborah went up with him. Now uh, Heber, and the Kenite, uh, has separated from the Kenites, the descendants of Hobab, the father in law of Moses, and had pitched his tent far away from the oak of Zenanium which is near Kadesh. You guys know all this, right? Okay, verse 12. When Caesarea was told that Barak, the son of Abinuan, excuse me, had gone up to Mount Tabor, Caesarea called all his chariots, 900 chariots of iron, 
and all the men who were with them from Paras Chagun to the river of Kishon. This is why we never finish this book. The names are crazy. Right? All right. So they gather at Mount Tabor. Now a picture of Mount Tabor. Where is she? You can go see it today. It stands at a right, huge, massive altitude of 1,800. <laughs> <laughs> it's the northwest corner of the Jezreel Valley. It is controlling one of the most important crossroads in the region. In fact, it's very strategic because all of Israel can gather there. It's kind of an equal spot. It's very strategic. Um, Mount Tabor was a place that would also be, because it's the high ground, it's the safe place, safe place from the iron chariots. The iron chariots were considered, I told you a little bit of this, were considered the highest form of military tech in the ancient world. Uh, this army could form, uh, could destroy anybody and anything in its path. This would, with the, for the reader, this is like watching a boy with a slingshot take on Iron Man. And the boy wins. Right? I mean, this is not going to, this isn't going to work, right? Just, you know who Iron Man is? Are you wet? Comics, Marvel, a lot of Okay, so, so this is, I mean, this is impossible odds, but they take the high ground. But the high ground is not always a safe place. In fact, you know this picture? That is at Hirojima, and that is World War II. It's a very famous picture. It's a very, very small island, and the Americans went in to take it. It was heavily fortified. In fact, this uh, picture is a, is a reshot. They did this. And the photographer said, can you do that again? <laughs> I'm going to make history and uh, get a Pulitzer Prize. And so uh, this is the second shot of this picture. And uh, as the men are putting around this flag, this is the highest ground on the Regina. It's a famous picture of taking the high ground. Who had the high ground first? The Japanese. Who lost the high ground? The Japanese. High ground does not guarantee victory. There's another famous place, uh, I don't want a picture of it, um, the Battle of Bunker Hill. Um, the uh, the Americans had Bunker Hill, and they were um, they were defending it, and the Redcoats were coming, the British, um, the bad British, not the good British like we had today, and uh, they were coming. One time, I, uh, Christmas Eve, I think it's British people. So, the the bad British back in the day, and they were coming. We were fighting the Revolutionary War, and uh, they were coming up, and we were defending Bunker Hill, and. The, um, as they rose up, they, a very famous saying was said there for the very first time. Uh, the general said, do not fire, because they have limited ammunition, do not fire until you see the whites of their eyes. And so as the, as the redcoats are coming up, the men waited until they were like within feet of, these, uh, of this army, and finally they fired. And the redcoats retreated, they regrouped, they came back up the hill, they fired again. And that, on that day, a thousand people, a thousand military British soldiers were killed. It was, a, it was a huge loss for them. However, on the third front, the Americans had run out of ammunition and had hand-to-hand -hand combat, and they lost. They lost the war because the high ground does not always guarantee victory. Who guarantees victory? Only God. The only way they win this battle is not because they have not been there. They win this battle because of God. Verse fourteen. And Deborah said to Barak, "Up." For this is the day on which the Lord has given Caesarea into your hand. Does not the Lord go out before you? Again, she's prophesying very boldly, very bravely. So Barak went down to Mount Tabor with 10,000 men following him. And the Lord routed Caesarea and all his chariots and all his army before Barak by the edge of his sword. Caesarea got down from his chariot, fled away on foot, and Barak pursued the chariots and the army of, you know, 
And all the army of Caesarea fell to, by the edge of the sword. Not a man was left. God gives Israel the victory. They use swords and sticks and pitchforks of a poorly outfitted militia to take on these iron chariots. They win. Um, and then what, to make it even worse is when they're running away. And I don't know about you. Um, uh, whenever, I'm in, whenever, I'm, whenever I'm fighting people... <laughs> But like the other day, I was in a bar fight, and a bunch of guys were taking me on. I just beat them, and uh, and they ran away. And uh, I looked at Austin and said, "Look at him run," you know. And um, and Austin said, "Yeah, whew, I'm glad that's over." And you know, it's all lying in the head. I've been in a fight in my life. But anyway, um, you know. But normally, if you see a, a huge army and they and they run away, you would say, well, "I'm glad that's over." No, not Israel. No, they said, "This is our day. Chase them down." We're going to go chase them down. So they ran them down and killed every single man except for one. That's real. So here's the rest of the story I'm not going to read to you. We're wrapping this thing up. So Assyria gets away. The entire army is destroyed. He goes to a, he finds a tent in the middle of the desert. There's a woman, one woman in this tent. It's a very tense scene. You can just imagine he's bloodied. His armor's falling off. He's hot and sweaty and just disgusting. So he finds this woman in this tent, kind of like a refuge. And he says, How's me? And she does. She lets him in. And he says, I'm thirsty. So she gives him goat's milk to drink, which is heavy. He's tired. So he lays down to take, take a nap. Before he takes his nap, he says one thing. He says, If anybody comes for me, anybody comes here asking for a man, say, I know who it is. That's him. And she grabs a tent stake. Puts it on his temple, and the rest is rated R. <laughs> Made for horror movies. It's crazy. It's in the Bible. You should read it. Okay. <laughs> Verse 23 finishes like this So on that day, God subdued Jabin the king of Canaan before the people of Israel, and the hand of the people of Israel pressed harder and harder against Jabin the king of Canaan until they destroyed Jabin the king of Canaan. And the Israel people were set free. And Chewbacca and Luke Skywalker and Han Solo are there to play the music, and they put the Things when their medallions on them, and everybody's happy, and R2D2, D2, 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 and everybody's good, Princess Leia's happy. Okay. What's the point? Deborah is the point. And Deborah's bravery is the highlight of it all. Deborah shows bravery. She shows bravery before we even get to know her, she's brave. Because in a culture that is against her God, and a people who are drifting from her God, she remains faithful to give Israel wisdom from God. So she's already refuting culture. Then she acts as a prophetess, and she bravely says, I've heard from God, go do this. Then she not only does that, she puts her own self at risk, then she risks 10,000 men that she's in charge of to go to war to set Israel free. Also, bravery. Bravery, bravery, bravery. When I got to the end of that, I thought, you are some of the bravest people I've ever met in my life. You absolutely are. You do, you're crazy. Bravery sometimes looks like foolishness. Um, in fact, I, uh, I, I had, had a lot of stupid things I've done in my life, so I could um, how about yesterday? Yesterday the sun was shining when I went skiing, 
and uh, or we were getting ready to go skiing. It's about 12, 30. I was like, the sun was shining. You live right here. I stepped outside. I was like, oh, it's warm. It feels like a spring day. I'm going to be brave and ski without a coat. <laughs> so brave. So brave. And so I, uh, I went skiing, and my daughter, Audrey, said, Dad, you have inspired me to be brave as well. <laughs> Did she ski without a coat? That went marvelous. <laughs> By the time we got on the second lift, it starts snowing on us, and I'm like, bravery looks pretty dumb right now. Right? That's what bravery does. Like, you see the most brave people, it looks dumb unless you land it, unless you get it done, unless you accomplish whatever it is that you're risking, then you go, that was awesome. Like, if the day got really, really hot, everyone would be like, you're so smart. I'd be like, I know, that's so brave. Right? Like, it's like hit 40, you know? Like, man, I wish I didn't have this coat on. Like, yeah, I know I didn't wear my coat, sucker, you know? So great. But instead, it backfired, it snowed, and everybody's like, you look like an idiot. I'm like, yeah, so great. That's what bravery looks like. And you guys, listen, I I don't know. You guys jump off of rocks and ski down trees and ski down crazy mountains, and you go to Jackson Hole, and, and you drive in this weather, and you, some of you have taken on bears, some of you hike into the woods with guns and shoot living animals. I mean, you guys are, I'm not even joking, you're actually very, very brave people, right? I'm very impressed. We live here, that's brave. We pay taxes here, that's brave. <laughs> we are brave people who live here. But here was my burden. I, I say this, from, from Deborah's perspective here, from the scripture, not from me, and I'm not trying to talk to Sarah you. I just, I love you, and I, I just want you to keep loving me. But this is where my burden is. So what? When have you been brave for something that matters? When have you been brave for something that mattered bigger than the story? And I'm saying to myself, when's the last time you were brave enough to leave her When's the last time you were brave enough to adopt a child? When's the last time you were brave enough to write a really big check to your mom or to, work, to take care of a ministry son or a missionary son? When's the last time you were brave enough to take care of a baby? When's the last time you were brave enough to risk it all for somebody else? That's what Deborah did. That's the bravery. You've already got bravery. Like you're already brave people. You are. I've, I'm telling you, you're different from everybody else past us, right? I mean, you're just different. We're mountain people. You're already brave. Take that bravery and apply it to the things of God. Take it and do something big with it. God is the, is the best example of that because he looked at you and I, and the whole world was saying, they're a risk. They're not going to be faithful. They're not going to be good to you. And God said, I know, I might look foolish, but I'm going to give everything I have for you. Because I love you. God, being all his bravery, gave us his son, our Savior, Jesus Christ, that we have him forever. You have that in you. Be brave. I don't know where God's calling you to be brave, but I know he's calling you 